Welcome to Parkinson's in Perspective, where we bring you information about the origins, research, treatment, and future directions of Parkinson's disease. My name is Julia Trollio, and I'm the current president of McGill Students for Parkinson's Awareness. Parkinson's disease is a fairly prominent disorder affecting more than 1% of the population over 65. It is a progressive neurodegenerative disorder. Resting tremors, muscle rigidity, slow movements, and impaired balance are characteristic of Parkinson's disease. Each episode, we are fortunate to have leading researchers in the field come and talk about their research and answer some of our questions. Today, we will be speaking with Dr. Thomas Durkin. He has been an assistant professor at the Montreal Neurological Institute since 2007 and conducts research focusing on patient-derived induced pluripotent stem cells to develop phenotypic discovery assays and 3D mini-brain models for both neurodegenerative and neurodevelopmental disorders. Sorry, I was running late. No worries. Not, no problem at all. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. It's a new initiative that we're starting, so we really appreciate it. No, I was happy to join. So we just have a few questions that we've uh, lined up after reading some of your research. Um, to begin, we're going to start pretty broad. Kind of want to know um, what factors are influencing the onset of Parkinson's disease at the moment? Oh, that's a big question. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the big one. So I think we still don't have a full handle on it just yet. I think by 20, 30 years ago, everyone thought it was like environmental. And then with the kind of advent of genetics, we started to find genes like a synuclein, Parkin, Pink one. Now there's close to 80 to 90 genes that are all linked to Parkinson's, either they're mutated or that they're risk factors. So there's kind of a prevailing view in the field, I guess, that a lot of these genes are getting mutated in different forms of Parkinson's disease. And it all seems to be kind of honing in on kind of maybe a few conserved pathways like uh one is uh on the synuclein itself like uh it's a protein that was discovered in 1997 and it's been shown that it can misfold and it can spread throughout the brain almost like in a prion like fashion and it can actually form it in the gut so there's this kind of i guess a new ideas in the field that maybe you actually form pd in the gut or your travels up into your brain towards your nose uh and then it goes from there, spreading through kind of kind of across the different neurons and the different connections, eventually leading to loss of the, the dopaminergic neurons themselves. And I think there's been kind of a new kind of renewed push as well in terms of um, the idea that mitochondria, so energy metabolism is in play or could be impacted. That's like the waste disposal systems, like the lysosome, if you kind of mess with them, they somehow often lead to Parkinson's. And I guess there's a new angle about the immune system that maybe that there's a kind of a Parkinson's could be a kind of immune a disease itself. So there's a kind of a lot of different areas that are all kind of being studied now. And then hopefully over the next few years, it might lead to some consolidation of point away to, I guess, what is the kind of true or maybe the true reasons why Parkinson's happens. That's really interesting. It's a lot more than just one idea. It's, it's almost everything. <laughs> well, because everyone always kind of calls Parkinson's like Parkinson's disease, but in reality, it's likely a syndrome where you probably have multiple types of Parkinson's all under kind of this one umbrella. And it may not just be one, you know, you hit one pathway and you have a magic bullet and that'll cure the disease. It's likely, you know, that we know we have early onset Parkinson's where we have mutations in the Parkin gene. Uh, we have lurk Parkinson's, which is a little different. Uh, even sometimes of the atypical Parkinson's is all different. So you have a lot of different, I guess, disease progressions that hint that maybe there's different pathways and they all kind of converge on the same effect of 
you lose the dopamine pathway and then you kind of get these aggregates or you get the kind of movement um, symptoms that eventually manifest as Parkinson's itself. Really interesting. Wow. Um, I know that your research focuses on induced pluripotent stem cells. Could you tell us a little bit about the history of those, why they were created, um, what their goal is? Yeah, so a lot of this actually, so it was actually two guys that won the Nobel Prize for this back, I think it was 2011 or 12. It was for John Gurdon and uh, Shinji Yamanaka from Japan. And actually, it was work from John Gurdon back in the 60s. He actually worked in frogs and he actually had a, he had a female egg and he was able to take out the nucleus. He had this idea that I could take a skin cell and he could reprogram it into a different cell type, but he had to do the experiment and frog was the system at the time. So by actually taking an oocyte or an egg, like a female egg and taking it to nucleus and taking the male sperm, or actually he took a skin cell from the frog. He could take the, the nucleus from that, put it into the oocyte, and then it could actually lead to the, a new frog. But the frog was actually not the mother. It was actually the progeny itself. So it was actually the relative of the, the skin, I guess. So frog B gave its skin cell, and then actually that led to the progeny being frog bee. So that led to this whole idea that you could actually take the nucleus or the genetic material and kind of reprogram cells into a kind of a different donor or kind of a different cell type. And so the idea for iPSCs has really come about from probably the 80s. So in the 80s, we all knew we could take mouse embryos and we could get mouse embryonic stem cells, but they weren't human cells. And everyone had really a kind of need that to study human disease, we want the human cells themselves. But there was a lot of ethical considerations that went into that. So uh, John Thompson actually, or Jamie Thompson from Wisconsin, actually, he did actually uh, create human embryonic stem cells from uh, discarded embryos. And so that led to several embryonic stem cell lines being created in the 90s. And people could actually take these lines and actually make them into different human cell types. But it kind of hit the 2000s when there was a lot of kind of ethical concerns and a lot of pushback about the use of these lines. So if people worked on these lines, uh, funding was suspended or the research wasn't allowed. So the field was kind of going, we'd like to work on human stem cells because from the cell, we can make any cell type we want. And in particular, as a person who works on the CNS disorder, we really want neurons and we couldn't do it before that. And so that was actually kind of Shinji Yamanaka's work really uh, with uh, uh, Dr. Takahashi and others really kind of led the way. So they were able to take a skin cell from a mouse. Uh, they went through about 40 or 50 different transcription factors, honing in on four. They're now called the Yamanaka factors and then they just take a skin cell and they essentially reset it. They bring it back to almost like stage zero. So if you kind of think of a computer, it's like having a computer, you've had it for two, three years, and then you reboot it back to factory settings. And now you have to kind of start all over again with it. And that's kind of how it would work with a cell. So you now have this pluripotent cell. It has the capabilities to go and make any cell type you want uh, when you give it the right cues. And so they started with mouse and then a year later they published it with human. And since then, They've really kind of people like themselves and many others have honed the techniques, the reagents, the media, all the kind of quality control that went into it. So they could really now make uh, iPSCs from all the, any pretty much any person in the world a stem cell could then be made from. Interesting. That was a really fast transition from mice to humans, only one year. Because, and so this is actually the reason was for this is they actually knew a lot of the information from 
the actual human embryonic stem cells. So a lot of the conditions had already been kind of built up and doing it in mice is really the proof of principle, but everyone really wanted it to go into humans in a way, because we already had the mouse models, but we really wanted to get it into a kind of human cell itself. That makes a lot of sense. And why, why are iPSCs so much better than a classical cellular animal model? I wouldn't say they're better or worse. I think there's, there's advantages and disadvantages to each model. I think the one key advantage for a human iPSC over a mouse model is we can actually capture the, the patient's genetic background. So every patient that comes into the clinic, we can actually capture their blood, their skin, and then we can make it into a stem cell. Whereas when it comes to animal models, we can really only go after specific genes that are affected. We can say, well, gene A here is affected in a disease. So we'll knock it out or add a mutation. And then that's really the disease itself. Whereas when we do it with stem cells, we can say, well, this patient came to the clinic. We know everything about their progression of the disease. We even have their DNA in the cell that we're studying. And now we can start to see is what, what's going on with the cell? Is there something wrong with the neuron? Is there a phenotype that might be emerging? And then we can actually start to build cohorts of patients on a dish. So you could start with five patients, 10 patients, and then you can actually start to say, well, what's different? What's unique about these patients versus that patients? You can then get patient stratification and ultimately maybe lead to clinical trials on a dish so that instead of having to go back and do all these the kind of treatments in patients, you can now start to do it in an actual dish itself with neurons. So hopefully the goal is then to save funds and to kind of you know get stuff done in a kind of quicker manner. Very interesting. And for iPSCs in regards to Parkinson's research, do we think they're going to assist in fighting like targeted treatments to maybe put Parkinson's in remission or even reverse dopamine-induced damage? Is that even possible? <clears throat> so I think we're exploring it on two angles. So I think on our side, we kind of see it as a model that we could potentially find new therapeutics. So in a way, let's say we, we've in our open repository at the Neuro we have been kind of recruiting patients through the Quebec Parkinson's network, the new Canadian C Open network. So now we're, we have close to 30 to 40 Parkinson's lines from different patients. Uh, and the goal is to expand this, but the real aim for us is we make neurons, so dopaminergic neurons or other cell types that are in the brain from these patients and study them at a very deep level because we're kind of taking our cues from cancer over probably in the eighties in cancer and oncology they had one thing that we didn't for a long time, they had access to tissue. So every patient with like a different form of cancer, like liver cancer, lung cancer, they always had a biopsy. The cells were actually extracted, they were grown on a dish and they were deeply phenotyped. So people would actually study them at a single cell and even within the cell at an organelle level. And that led to an understanding of why is cancer happening and then leading to the development of personalized therapies. When it came to the brain though, we were about 20 years behind because we didn't know what was going on. We couldn't get access to the neurons in the brain because what we're kind of born with is what we're kind of left with. And so when the stem cells came on, this kind of was a game changer. We now had the ability to almost do a living tissue biopsy in a dish of human neurons. They're not exactly the same as like, let's say a 60 year old person because they're, they're not 60 year old neurons, but they're the closest thing we could have right now. And so from these uh, 2D neurons or 3D brain organoids, we can really deeply phenotype them and say, well, this pathway looks like maybe there's a defect here. So now we can actually do more targeted screens. We can actually build in new therapies. <clears throat> Sorry. 
And so that's kind of our approach at the neuro and my group of what we're doing. But there are others that see stem cells as a way that you can almost do transplants. And our, I think there's a Blue Rock and there's one or two other companies now that are actually in on the process of doing the kind of transplantation. So uh, the group of Lauren Studer, they've really kind of built really great techniques and protocols to make dopaminergic neurons from stem cells. And these are kind of being used as the, the kind of building blocks to actually replace the dopaminergic neurons that are lost within the disease. So I think there's kind of two angles that people are looking at it. I think both will serve kind of useful ways at the end. And so it's important to do both. So from what I'm understanding, the dopaminergic cells are being created from the stem cells of the patient, correct? Yes. And will that be able to go through the blood-brain barrier um, easier? From my previous knowledge from courses and such, it, that has been the biggest struggle is trying to find a way for it to pass through the blood-brain barrier. Oh, uh, so if they did the transplants, most likely all they do is they, what they do is actually do surgeries and they put them deep into the region. So they all, they pretty much bypass the blood-brain barrier then. So they would take a suspension of cells and surgically inject them into the actual region of the brain that they want in the patients. Like if it's just for dopamine replacement, then you wouldn't need it for that because they already have a lot of L-dopa derivatives like carbidopa, levodopa, that already do a pretty great job of doing it. So the real way that they would put in dopaminergic cells into a person is by surgical intervention. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and we are in the middle of a pandemic, so we're kind of curious of how COVID-19 is impacting Parkinson's patients and the researchers. Could you maybe elaborate on that from a firsthand perspective? So I think from so from the patients, I'm not overly familiar. Just in terms, of, I'm not. I don't, I don't see them in the clinic. Like a, I'm not a clinician myself. I do interact with clinicians. I know, I know it's been a challenge because obviously the whole kind of shelter at home, stay in your home kind of has had an impact on these patients. They're kind of they're one of the vulnerable patients in this society. There, many of them are over sixty. Parkinson's kind of puts them at risk, and so I think one of the big transitions I've heard, especially from the clinicians, is to kind of to switch over to telemedicine. So now they're able to almost see and talk to their doctor or through the phone, through uh, Zoom, like the way a lot of us are. We're kind of learning this whole new kind of multimedia way of doing things. Like we can have meetings, we can talk to people all from the comfort of a chair at home, like I'm doing here. And so I think that's been one of the impacts as well. I think it's obviously led to a lot of stress on them, a concern with kind of appointments and everything. And, but I, I can't really go into too much more of the details on that. In terms of the research itself, I think at the beginning, and even true now, it's been a struggle for a lot of labs like mine and many other Parkinson's labs. Obviously, we had a lot of projects that had to be kind of ground to a halt in March. When the lockdown went into place, a lot of work samples were frozen down or they were lost because we were given four days to shut everything down and stay home. So there was a lot of work that was going on. And some of these experiments kind of are long-term experiments that go on for months. So in a way, like we lost about three months of work through this, but it wasn't just like three months of work in the lab. It was probably close to nine months of work that was delayed because by stopping it then we have to restart it and then that sets us back several months as well some stuff was lost in terms of reagents like we have to replace stuff but now we're kind of getting back on our feet it's kind of a it's a slow process like obviously between the masks the social distancing reduced numbers in the lab like stuff has to go a lot slower we're not able to take on as many projects as we used to be able to 
sometimes we have to kind of pick priorities. So instead of saying, I'll do five projects and you know, these are all very interesting projects that will deepen our understanding, we might now only be able to do one or two. And so I guess that's kind of had an impact in terms of you have to be selective and you have to be creative in how we do things. But I think we've been fortunate in terms of the people we work with, uh, the team, everyone's been resilient, resourceful. Like, we do in a way we've kind of adopted to the new way of doing things you know lab meetings at home on the computer or new different hours of people working at staggered hours maybe some people work in the morning some people work late at night and so we're surviving and getting by and i think it's kind of you know getting a bit, little bit better bit by bit but it'll be a struggle for probably the next 18 months Yes, the impact that it's having is, is very interesting on every field. So I've been interested to hear from the different perspectives. So thank you for sharing that. No problem. Um, and from the moment you started working with Parkinson's disease till now, how do you think things have changed within Parkinson's disease? Um, I know you mentioned that the complexity of like the origins <laughs> has changed, but I'm kind of curious um, about the research and treatments and how, how has it changed a lot within a certain period of time or... Well, I kind of look at it like through my own journey. So I actually started at the neuro in 2007. So I had my background and training as a cell biologist. And so I actually joined a lab at Ted Fawn in 2007. And at the time we knew maybe five, six genes that were linked to Parkinson's. It's now 2020 and we now know about 80 to 90 genes. Uh, when I started it about 13 years, no, about, when was it, 13 years ago, yeah. We were kind of making proteins and we were working in HeLa cells and U2OS cells. So uh, an immortalized cancer cell line to study a disorder of the brain. And so we actually, this, these are the cells we use to understand the biology because we knew there were six or seven proteins. We didn't really know what they were doing. And we were trying to kind of under, understand the kind of basic cell biology in a non-neuronal model. And then we were kind of going on top of that, adding mouse models as well into it. And it was really, I guess, my transition and away in the field came like about 2014 when we started to move into human stem cells because we decided you know we have to go into this area because if we want to study parkinson's disease we have to work in human dopaminergic neurons and human astrocyte models and all the kind of human neuron models that we need to do and i think since then i guess the new techniques have come on board from like crispr genome editing the brain organoids, the single cell sequencing, so that we can really take these cells and deeply phenotype them. Whereas, you know, 13 years ago, we were working on one gene in a HeLa cell. The experiments we were doing were a little bit more simplistic. And now the complexity has gone way, way up, like because we can now do it across scale, across in the patient itself. Whereas before, it was never really within the patient. We knew there was a gene linked to a particular patient or patients with the disease, but now we can actually study that patient in their own cells. So that's kind of really the main, I guess, differences. It's got, it's really kind of, you know, we've gone from non-patient cells really into patient cells and really the technologies have let us kind of large data sets that can now be used to interrogate each patient at a very deep uh, phenotypic level. Wow, yeah, over 13 years, that's a lot of development within such a short time frame. It feels, it does feel like a lot of development, but it never feels that quick when you're in it. But mm -hmm. um, you know what, like I guess over the next five years, 10 years, I'm sure the field's gonna dramatically change. Like sure, Parkinson's disease, for instance, like in 1997, it was the first time we had a gene identified. And now it's, uh, that's 23 years later. So in a way the field has come on in leaps and bounds, but sometimes that's what happens is, you know, 
it's kind of like a, a stone rolling down a hill that just gathers steam and before you know it it's kind of moving faster and faster so i think that's where we're at now with the the pd field we're kind of learning more and more and which is a good thing but it could be a bad thing as well because there's so much information out there we have to kind of unpack it and say what does it all mean Interesting. Yes. Well, that actually flows right perfectly into my next question, which is actually our last one. Um, with the most recent topics you and other experts have been studying, what are some anticipated breakthroughs that you think will come in the field in the next couple, 10, 10 years-ish? I think from myself, I think we will probably see this kind of stratification of Parkinson's. So really, everyone always says, you know, we have to find a cure for Parkinson's. For me, I think we more have to find cures for Parkinson's. So I think we'll start to better stratify the disease and start to maybe develop targeted therapies across the different subtypes of PD. So rather than saying, you know, I'll take 100 patients in the clinic and I'm going to give them all the one drug, it might be that only 10 patients should get this one drug, but the other, let's say another 16 will get a different drug and so on and so forth. So I think we're going to start seeing a kind of a personalized precision medicine approach to how we both approach understanding the disease and also how we develop new therapies for it. And I think that's going to be a lot of the key factors to it and probably an integration of big data approaches. So advanced microscopy, single cell sequencing, really kind of adding a lot of the, I guess, advanced omics. And uh, I guess the buzzword always now is AI and machine learning as well. I think this will have a kind of impact in how we both model and understand the patient cells on a dish, but also how we kind of develop and design new drugs. Definitely specialization is an area a lot of medicine is going into. So I'm, I'm happy to hear that Parkinson's will go in that direction as well. Um, thank you so much for um, being on this podcast with us. Um, it's new. We're excited. And this has been really, really informative. So thank you so, so much. Not a problem. It was great to be here. It was nice to talk to you thank today. You. We would like to thank uh, Carlo Martin and Sophie Luo. Um, for helping us create the background information that we needed to create this podcast, the questions, doing some research, um, and helping alongside the background work. Thank you so much, guys. McGill Students for Parkinson's Awareness works closely with Parkinson's Quebec, a foundation dedicated to providing support services to Parkinson's patients and their caregivers, as well as contributing to research, advocacy, and education. If you or someone you know is living with Parkinson's disease and would like more information on support services, physiotherapy, dance classes specifically for PD patients, and many other services, please visit parkinsonsquebec.ca for more information. Thank you all so much for listening. Visit our website for more information about fundraising events and subscribe so you never miss an episode.